Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. Well, it's great to hear about all that exciting celluloid action from the Bums on Seats team. I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Arts Roundup, an hour of creative discovery in Cambridge's many nooks and corners where we'll meet the artists and find out what makes them tick, visit a fine art degree show to talk about the talent and hear about a key venue under threat. In this edition... If you've ever come home from a holiday to find something strange has grown abundantly in your new pristine home, it might constitute the epitome of a modern nightmare. That and much more from Cambridge School of Art Degree Show. We hear about the imminent threat to the live performance licence at CB2 Cafe in Norfolk Street that could impact on jobs and virtually end the evening social scene at a key artist hub. We make a studio visit to Cambridge artist Charlotte Cornish to talk about her new exhibition, Open Studios, and creating colourful abstract art depicting emotions within. And we drop in to visit artists Cato and Rosemary Catlin for a poem or two at Gallery 9. Cambridge School of Art Degree Show has been something of a must this week, showcasing some really excellent work and attracting over 3,000 visitors as a key part of the artist's calendar. The show opened with a prize-giving of the Soprani Gaisley Award for the Best Fine Art Exhibit, carrying a £2,500 cheque, which was snapped up by artist Sophie Neville for a provocative piece of art that the judges absolutely loved. It's three banners that um, use appropriated text uh, to explore the different social media reactions to closure of exhibitions due to artists being um, accused of sexual harassment and um, sort of the... The large pieces of text show the gallery reaction to that and um, then there's a lot of embroidered text that shows the social media reaction to that and how social media interacts with politics today. How surprised are you to have actually won the prize? I'm so surprised, honestly. Like, I, I didn't think I was going to win at all because my classmates are all so amazing. It's such stiff competition. <laughs> oh, I shall invest it in something sensible like art supplies. <laughs> Artist Imogen Dungate's piece, which had connotations of a bizarre and alarming infestation in black rubber inside a pristine white room, certainly surprised visitors with its visual impact, immaculate detail and originality. Imogen, I wandered into this um, wonderfully white room with um, an everyday objects on it in terms of picture frames and a white television, but it's all pristine. Yes. But um, then there is something very extraordinary in here. Can you describe what's in here? Um, basically, it's thousands upon thousands of cut-up bicycle inner tubes that have been discarded around Cambridge. And I've just basically collected them and sort of manipulated them, uh, sprayed them and sort of displayed them in the white space. Um, it looks, I mean, to me, it looks rather like the way that mussels grow on rocks, but yeah. they're growing on pristine surfaces. Yeah. surfaces. So it's an absolutely um, tremendously um, high-impact piece of artwork. Where did the idea come from? Um, the whole idea came around sensory deprivation, actually. Um, the idea of creating something from nothing. Um, and the idea that this contrasting black and white is kind of battling out with one another in the space. And the idea is you're meant to come in and kind of interact with both sides and kind of experience the space, really. And people have had very different reactions to it. I often get that uh, it's quite um, otherworldly, it's quite creepy, um, with other people are more intrigued by it and they like to touch it. So it's more about reactions and how people interpret this space because everyone's going to be different. Um, What part does the computer screen play in the middle of this? Um, Basically, it's the central part of the piece. When you look at it, you see white noise, and it kind of gives you a bit more context into what I'm trying to achieve here. 
Yeah. It's quite surreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it, it kind of looks, uh, I guess, like organic, something growing, something that shouldn't be there, kind of infestation. Um, and that's kind of, I wanted to highlight that with the use of the shoe covers um, when you enter the space, the curtain. So something's kind of blocking you off, like you're not supposed to be in there. I visited lecturer in fine art Rosanna Greaves, who commented on Monica Mendoza-Rifo's work. So this is a combination, actually, of two works by Monica. Um, sort of brought together as almost like a single installation. So these are umbrellas and you can recognise them as umbrellas but they're kind of taking this form of being suspended in such a way where they are making like a kind of aviary of of crows or perhaps bats so they look like they're flying through the space and I think certainly when you walk into the room you do get this kind of sense of suspended belief of that of them having come to life in some way although uh, you know I think what uh, some of the thing that's interesting about the work is that it does retain a sense of its original um, material being this very everyday material. And the second work, in a similar vein, takes um, sets of, of shoes with these, the, she calls them grassy feet, so this sense of they're actually wires but looking like grass kind of growing out of them, a sense of kind of people being rooted in different familiar groups um, as a sort of social social commentary as well. So they're kind of staged, almost like we have this park here um, that's, um, yeah, got a groups of people and then birds in at the same time. And then, um, and then something completely different here, um, works by Hannah Lucas, which are huge, colourful canvases, um, which, um, how would you describe those as paintings exactly? What would you say they were? Well, they're abstract paintings. Um, Hannah's very interested in different forms of, of gestural paintings. So she paints a lot directly with her hands. It's very physical. When you mentioned earlier about how people work in the studio, you know, Hannah's of, often got these kind of down on the floor where she's working very quite quickly, very physically with them. And then with this particular um, set of works that she has, she then has this um, much more kind of intricate um, drawing with the charcoal on top of that that's kind of picking up on some of the some of the notions of the gesture that's coming out through the paintwork. Um, there seems to be quite a developed artist um, uh, for, for someone who's quite young in her career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Hannah's very, very passionate and very interested in, in, particularly in painting. You know, she's always been a painter on the course and she has kind of developed that over the years and taken, taken her studies here really seriously. So we have great hopes for her in the future as well. The illustration work in the main hall was truly imaginative, with the students hitting an impressive standard in a wide range of projects that took in themes like Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time, Kafka's Metamorphoses, and also the plight of rhinoceroses. Here's course leader Chris Draper. Um, it's a tremendously um, interesting um, batch of work that you're showing here this year. Um, um, can you take me through um, some of the variety of the stuff that the students have done and, and tell me who they are? So really glad that you like the work um, and I'm really glad that you picked up the, fact, the variety of work and I think it's one thing we really encourage students on this course to do is discover their own personal visual language. Yeah. Um, if we have a look around the gallery, um, the one thing I love about illustration and I get very excited about is how accessible it is uh, that anyone can come into a gallery and get something out of this. And to get this kind of result is quite something as well. It takes three years and it's really a chance for people to have a glimpse at the work before it goes up to London in July to new designers. We've got a real mixture of editorial work, so that will be people working for magazines, newspapers, children's books, model making. Um, we're looking at Lucy's work who's obsessed with um, old architecture and buildings in danger. This is um, Lucy Gibson. That's, that's correct. And then next to that we've got Mel whose passion is model making. 
Um, and these are models of, um, well, it's a wonderfully, uh, it's a small um, sheep, um, which is extremely, um, uh, well, very, a very detailed model, um, what looks like um, a tiger or a lynx, um, and then also a man who looks as though he could be some kind of um, garden. Fisherman, I think he's a fisherman. And it's a lovely story about uh, uh, the animals that live in a house, and a man comes along and does up the house, and, and the, the, all the animals end up homeless. So it's a sad story in some ways. Um, do you need a strong story for illustration? I think illustration is a very broad church and some people were working with narrative children's books, other people work better with a one-off kind of editorial image for a newspaper or magazine. Um, okay, so um, moving on. The rain, <laughs> the rain Cat, is that a children's story? It is, yes. And this is yeah. a children's story by someone called Doon Kwon. It is, yeah. um, who's going on to do the MA in children's book illustration here. And it's a story that she's written herself about a cat that lives in the clouds and when he when he scratches the clouds, that's when it starts to rain. Um, really colourful, really using our printmaking facilities, but also computer work as well, digital work. Um, it's, it's both, both colourful um, and very impressive, and very warm as well, isn't yes, it, in terms yeah. of children? Yes, very accessible, yeah, very which accessible. is great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and moving around here. Yeah, we're looking at Maggie Cunningham's work, whose work is obviously very different, quite graphic, uh, and really interested in communicating ideas. In the top section, we've got these brightly coloured images uh, looking at food and people's preoccupations with food. Um, and below that, we've got some packaging for um, an oat cereal. Um, so these are, um, these are everyday situations. Um, one of them, obviously, what we're doing is, is, is sitting in an art gallery and, and thoughts flying through your head yeah. in terms of the <laughs> illustration. The next one is um, sitting in the bathtub um, in a bubble bath um, and thinking about food. Which yep, suppose, we've, all um, done it. we've all done it. <laughs> um, uh, and then there's another one um, in the office, which is... Um, uh, th these are very bright, um, simple... Um, Quite graphic. Uh, graphic yeah. illustrations. Uh, and that's thinking about um, lunch, because there's a thought bubble above the head of each person who's doing this. I think uh, this reflects Maggie's interest in food and possible obsession. Um, and then we've got one on Stephen Hawking here, The Brief History of Time. That's by this Heather... Is Heather Fouracre, yeah, yeah. Um, who's really chosen to base her visual language about, around book cover design. Uh, these were entered into the Penguin Design Awards, uh, Noughts and Crosses and A Brief History of Time. And then she's worked on a series of Len Dayton covers. Again, working with quite a graphic style, quite bold, um, and I can see her getting work with these covers somewhere. Um, to, to, to be at this standard already at the end of a course like this is quite something, isn't it? Um, I think it's a huge achievement, and I'm really looking forward to the private view this evening where we can celebrate that with friends and family and colleagues. Yeah, okay, um, I'm moving on. Um, uh, Charles Darwin, obviously. Um, <laughs> Charles Darwin seems to be a very big um, uh, theme in Cambridge at the moment because everyone's gone Darwinian, haven't they? Well, I think maybe the Zoological Museum opening again has put pe that Charles Darwin back in people's minds. Um, and what I like about this is this kind of playful approach, almost Python-esque approach to this kind of venerated figure. Um, and I like the, the fact it's, it's maybe playful rather than reverential. Um, it's also because Charles Darwin in himself, as, a, as you know, to look at a photograph of Darwin, which is obviously featured in these slightly Monty Python-esque, as you say, uh, illustrations, um, is a very sombre and serious-looking man, and yet the colour that they've added to it makes him look uh, much more contemporary and interesting. Exactly. It, it kind of knocks it sideways, doesn't it? The, what we're looking at here are actually stills from small moving image GIFs, um, almost like moving posters. Um, so there's another dimension to these where things actually start to move. Uh, th those are absolutely great. Great, okay. thanks. Um, 
and, and then um, moving on, we've, I mean, we've got loads of students work here, <laughs> but we're looking at a project by um, Georgie Wise, um, which is all about um, um, migration. Tell me about that. It's, it's about migration and refugees, um, and I think we're all familiar with the, the awful images that we see photographs in newspapers, and what she's chosen to do as an illustrator is to think about this metaphorically. So she's using the language of a butterfly travelling across the sea to a new city uh, in isolation and then meeting other butterflies based on the, the journey of the monarch butterfly. Um, so I think it's a really nice example of how illustration can bring another reading to a very possibly familiar and depressing story. Um, I mean, moving around, this is on a, on, on a, on a, um, a lighter note, we're looking at um, uh, great posters which have been done for um, fashion design, um, and, and these are incredibly impressive. I'm glad you say that. Uh, Anna Tesner has worked incredibly hard. Uh, one of the keys to fashion photography, it's got a very strong grammar to it, is keeping it fluid and loose. And I think most artists can freeze when they try and do work like this. And particularly the French couture V&A mock-up, uh, I think it's got a real life to the lines. I think she's using lines really intelligently. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how, when we move the show up to London, how the fashion houses respond, if at all, to this work. I, I like the way that it kind of mixes the two things between... Um, First of all, um, what could be um, possibly an image from a, an extremely flashy magazine cover. <laughs> um, and then what you've done is instead of um, having the, the flashy magazine cover, you had an excellent piece of drawing um, and then put into the same kind of um, frame, as it were. So uh, you combine the two things, the, the ability to draw um, and the actual, what people expect from the fashion. Again, I'm really glad you've picked up on this. Uh, one of the great traditions at Cambridge School of Art, particularly in the illustration department, is fundamental drawing. Uh, we still do life drawing, and it's, it's strange to see at the end of three years how that can manifest itself as, as fashion illustration. Um, and, and now moving on, what, what, what have we got here is a tremendous image by Jam Collins uh, um, on it. What's the issue here? The issue uh, that really Jam chose in her final major project was to produce a series of masks for a th theatrical production of UNESCO's Rhinoceros. Um, and what she's done is kind of boil down the essence of what a rhinoceros is, uh, and we see this progression from a human mask, the, the horn growing, and this transformation into the final rhinoceros. And the thing I love about this is it's unexpected in an illustration course. Um, it's based in a text, it's a response to a text, and it's a bit of visual communication. But I think there are plenty of surprises in this exhibition. And then what, what do we have here? Emily Coulthard. Emily's uh, really interested in narrative and storytelling, and one of the images we're looking down at the, the bottom right hand there is uh, Metamorphosis, Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, and she's produced a series of images telling the story. Again, she's using metaphor where the figure is standing like that and the shadow is actually of the insect that this chap, unfortunate chap, is going to be turning into. Um, working analogue with, with pencil, but also scanning that in and working digitally to add the colour. So it's quite an interesting process. Uh, it's Cornelia Bulletite, also known as Coco, on the yeah. course. Um, a set of very highly worked black and white images. Um, and the, the final outcome is an A to Z to help people learn Moroccan. She visited Morocco, fell in love with the, the country and wanted to base her major project on language, image and education. The show's presentation and look was masterminded by Chairman John Clark and was nothing short of a cracker this year. The exhibits also featured film project screenings at the Arts Picture House, interior design projects at Cambridge Museum of Technology and graphic design artwork that demonstrated Cambridge School of Art's ability to produce seriously high-end results over a short degree course in any of its disciplines.
A key evening arts venue in Cambridge is under threat due to complaints from neighbours over sound emissions, although its owner claims he remains within strict licence levels. CB2 Cafe in Norfolk Street is an important hub for live music performers, artists and visiting poets, offering music in its gardens, restaurants and basements, and it attracts a large following with many of the artists relying on it for a key part of their living. Here's CB2 manager Joseph Barsuna. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the kind of music events and the artists that you're actually running here? Because there are a great number of them, aren't there? Well, we have, uh, obviously, we have larger groups that do it for a living. We have Ian and the funk, uh, Jazz Funk and Soul. We've got Kath Coombs uh, and the Awesomes, which are really good. Uh, I vary from uh, a two-piece band to a seven-piece band. Uh, I try to also get a lot of uh, young startups from Anglia, from all over the place, to try and get them see how it is to actually play music in front of a very chilled, laid-back audience. On Saturdays we have the Cambridge Acoustic Nights, which Dave runs for us, and uh, he brings in all sorts of artists that uh, just write their own songs to our poetry evenings, where people just come and it's a stand-up. Okay, so um, we've got a sort of dynamic sense where you have uh, all of these things going on, but it's now all under threat, isn't it? Uh, why is that? It is. Uh, there, there, there has been uh, quite a few complaints regarding uh, the, the noise levels uh, we're doing. Well, obviously, I stay within our licensing. Actually, I'm less than our licensing, so I try to hold it to uh, rather than three o'clock in the morning, I stop it at 11 p.m. Uh, I try my best to keep our area as calm as possible, but obviously, there are certain people that find it a nuisance, so I've had problems with that. Now, um, what have the council said to you? Because they've taken um, measurements, haven't they, of the noise emissions? Uh, they, they have told me it's classified as nuisance. Uh, they haven't given me specific figures because I'm trying to have every weekend something going on here. Uh, especially music for me is on every Friday. We try to have music every Friday and every Saturday because I feel that's what we are. Now, now if you were to um, lose your music license or to have it um, uh, heavily restricted, what effect would that have uh, on your business here and the whole character of what you do here? Well, I think it would then be just a morning cafe. Uh, I'd have to lay off part of my staff that work in the evening. Uh, it would have a dramatic effect on us because we are very music oriented. We are very art oriented. Uh, whether it's poetry, we it's who we are. You take that away, then half of who we are is gone. We, Cambridge is about knowledge. It's about learning things. It's about art. It's about a lot of things. And unluckily for Cambridge, we, we've lost a lot of places that do that. Because every place now is more oriented towards DJ music and other places, yes, is more feasible and they make more money out of it. I don't really go for that. I'd rather sit back, like you said, on our terrace, listen to music, have the feeling I'm on holiday, especially in the summer where people want to sit outside, they want to be out, they want to imagine their in the south of France somewhere, or in Spain, or in Greece, where there is background music, it's not drum and bass, it's not hard music, it's easy soul, jazz, easy listening music. There's nothing that's hard about what we play. I, I try not to have hard music. Well, the artists themselves are quite frustrated because they, they do their best to try and keep their volume down and to still make sure that the 80-odd people that are here are enjoying it to the fullest. 
that customers and my guests are quite frankly a bit annoyed sometimes because the music has had to be stopped on the side on the moment because I've been asked to put the volume down which you can't do when the music is already playing so not a really good thing to do and this is these restrictions will stop me from doing things for free that, that that's I, I offer the music we pay for it we push it problem will come to a stage where I'm not earning enough to pay for the bands which means we won't be able to do it anymore serving our university city and South Cambridgeshire this is Cambridge 105 radio it's the season for putting on your sun hat and ambling off to some of the hundreds of artists, studios, galleries and houses in Cambridge to taste the delights of Open Studios, which kicks off in July for four weekends. It's an opportunity to see talented artwork and crafts across the city in a wide range of media and to meet the artists, buy, exchange inspirational ideas and widen your arts network. To get a taster, I dropped in on abstract painter and printmaker Charlotte Cornish, who welcomes Open Studios visitors and is just about to exhibit new work at Bayard Art and Cambridge Contemporary Art. Charlotte, um, you probably have one of the best artist studios in Cambridge. You must feel incredibly fortunate to have this amount of space. I do. I was very lucky. I found this uh, studio about oh, 18, 19 years ago, and I've been renting it ever since, and I think I'm incredibly fortunate to be here. And just how much square footage is there here? Well, I did measure it up, and I think it's uh, between seven and 800 square feet, so it's, yeah, it's quite big. Yeah. I've been talking to lots of artists around Cambridge who are just saying they cannot find the studio space. They're, they're painting in, in small garages, trying to extend sheds and things like that, so you're, you're one of the lucky ones. I am so fortunate. I'm so fortunate and recently the uh, the house that owns the garden where my studio is it did change hands and I was so so lucky that I've been able to carry on renting so yeah I have light I have space I have a beautiful garden to look out on and it really helps with the way I can make my work. Um, now you're one of Cambridge's best known artists I suppose these days um, how did you become an artist and, and how long have you been doing it? Well I've done it right from um, art college um, so and also um, as a professional artist probably Probably now for the last 20-25 years. I did do a bit of teaching after I first qualified from my degree in postgraduate courses but I decided to try and make a living from doing my work alone and I've been lucky enough to do it but I've worked hard at it and it's a roller coaster but yeah I'm doing it. Now what is the core idea behind your paintings? These are wonderfully colourful paintings. I don't know how you would describe them yourself. Well, I think all of my work, certainly since art college, um, has been based on a sense of place. So I look for inspiration from places I visited or travelled to. Over the years, some of that has been quite exotic and around the world. Uh, in more recent year, years, I've worked much more from imagery from um, more locally, so from the Suffolk coast, from around Cambridgeshire, and it's tended to be in recent years taken from nature quite largely. But just recently, literally two weeks ago, I managed to get back to Marrakesh for my second time, and I've come back with quite a lot of photographs, which I'll be using as starting points for my next body of work. Now, I seem to remember last time we spoke, um, basically you were saying your painting showed the um, emotional impact that um, experiences have on you in the real world. Are those experiences different in a place like Morocco? Yeah, I think what I've found is when I'm working from imagery close to home, I tend to be very absorbed in the very personal um, relationship I have with those um, places. Um, and when I go abroad, I feel it becomes slightly less personal and more to do with the impact, like a kind of response to newness and to things that I'm less familiar with. 
Now, that's not a, um, a, an impact in terms of a landscape. It's an a impact on your inner self, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's changing horizons. It's seeing things that I learn from. It's being absorbed in colours and smells and sounds and otherness, which is what I find ultimately incredibly exciting and very inspiring. Now, when you've got an idea, how does it actually happen when you're actually working to bring it onto the canvas? I start almost always from photographs, which I take. And I tend to take photographs quite quickly, but I do try to get compositions that I know I'm quite interested in working from. But from that, I tend to work into small works on paper as studies, during that process, the images get slightly more abstracted, and by the time I start working on canvases or into my prints, the, the work has then become almost more abstracted. And although there are definite references to what I've seen, it has hopefully become much more a response to the feeling of places rather than just how a place looks. Now, um, some of them look like a kind of, um, they have elements of a kind of vol volcano of, 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 of moving colour um, in them. Um, are there different emotions depicted in different canvases that we see around them? I mean, how would you describe the emotion in each one of these? Well, I think it's interesting. I don't see a direct correlation between kind of the marks I make and specific emotions. But I'm hoping that when I have brought a composition to resolution, that in it there are elements of dynamic uh, excitement, um, just a kind of a real intensity of what that experience has been of me making the work and also what I originally was using as my starting point. What's been your most recent work? Right, recently I've been working on images taken from Hobson's Brook um, down um, through um, uh, near Brooklands Avenue and also images taken from actually Milton Country Park where there were some amazing dragonflies I saw um, a while ago. So it's been very nature-based, um, quite water-based actually, um, and a lot to do with um, reeds growing and grasses and hence a lot of my work at the moment has got some very strong vertical marks in it. Um, obviously, it's, um, your paintings have a lot of colour, a lot of zing to them. They brighten up a, a house, but this is a time of year when everything's got zing in it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a great time of year to be working, but, but I do actually work with kind of quite intense colour all year round. I seem to be drawn to starting points that have that kind of intense colour, and it doesn't seem to be too affected by what time of year I'm working in. Now, um, Open Studios is um, coming up. How important is that to you in the, in the Cambridge calendar, as it were? It's actually become increasingly important. I always, I've been doing it now, I think, for about 20 years. I've always enjoyed it because it's the one time of year I get a direct um, interface with the public. So I can talk about my work, people can come to me and ask me questions. But I, over the years, I think I've also really... Um, I've really recognised that people do seem to find me and come to me regularly. So I have a sense that there's a kind of a, um, a just an interest in my work in Cambridge, which I have really appreciated. Now, do you use that um, time as an opportunity to go and see other artists' work yourself? I do sometimes, but not too much. I do two weekends out of the four, and I must admit, on the other two weekends, I often am quite happy not to be in any, any studio at all, yeah. Um, so where can people find you here? Right, so uh, my studio is located in Chesterton. It's just off Chesterton High Street at the end of a little um, road called Thrift's Walk, and it's well signposted, so hopefully when my open studio is on, people 
will be able to find me. Uh, now, you've got a, a new exhibition um, opening up just in a, a very short space of time. When is that and what will it contain? Right, so I've got two exhibitions that I have my works included in um, in the next month. I've got a couple of new monoprints going into the Mixed Summer Exhibition at Cambridge Contemporary Art and also three new paintings, which I've just finished, which are going into a, another summer exhibition at Bayard Art uh, in Cambridge. And my next new body of work, which I'm just starting on, will be in Oxford um, in the autumn. I think it's quite interesting, certainly with open studios coming up, I'd just like to really encourage people to get out and look at studios. I think the um, experience of actually being an artist and making work is often quite um, hard for people to understand what it entails. And I think seeing work in a gallery is, is one way of, of, of seeing art. But I think actually coming and seeing studios, talking to artists, seeing the materials, how things are made, I think it can really help people with a different kind of appreciation of, of art and, and what it, what it is to be an artist. It's a wonderful chance to really see what people are doing. Discovering artists themselves is very much part of the Cambridge experience and they all have a unique story to tell as I found out in a recent foray into Gallery 9 earlier this month. Cato Catling's been exhibiting a collection of his work spanning a lifetime of experiencing life consciously led without rules, being fiercely anti-war and supporting the efforts of charity Médecins Sans Frontières, which he says is one of the few things he really found truly worthwhile in life. Catling was imprisoned as a conscientious objector after the war after refusing to join up for national service and this only strengthened his resolve to fight the idea of war wherever he found it. He worked on a painting while serving time to keep his spirits up and then promptly burnt it when he got out in protest. Now in his later years he's had a varied and interesting life creating paintings and objects that represent his exploratory experiences and poetry which accompanies each of his works dating back to the 1970s. The work is wide and varied and about just about anything that sprang into an unruly mind. In some work he explores the ideas of ancient communications suggested by Stonehenge, which interests him giving rise to colourful canvases bringing the stones to fervent life as they still contain a powerful living message. In another, the experience of breaking his teeth in a fall gave rise to a striking semi-sculptural abstract. He took time with his wife Rosemary to talk about what makes him tick and to read us a poem or two. First of all, um, Cato, um, an absolutely wonderful exhibition here, which um, I think everybody enjoyed the opening of very much um, last night. Tell me a little bit um, about yourself, basically. Um, how did you come to be an artist? I've always been good. I've always been top of the class in art and everything. So I naturally thought that's how I emerged into being me. I did go to Leicester Art School, but I left. Did you leave before finishing your course? Yes. Because it wasn't relevant to me. Mm. Was that so, do you think? Well, I think it's partly because they wouldn't let you do painting and sculpture. You had to choose one or the other in those days. And he was always wanting to put his ideas into whatever form seemed best. And you couldn't, didn't want to stick to one thing. So, so where would you say your um, ideas arise from when, when you have an idea for a piece? For, I mean, for instance, this piece here, which is um, a, a, an absolutely wonderfully uh, colourful piece, um, with um, uh, um, sort of plates fixed on, colourful plates onto a wire frame. What, what is, what's that about? That, that one's about, actually it's about toothache. That's uh, the poem that goes with it, Toothache Ted. You need to hear the poem, really. About two year, years ago, I fell down and broke my jaw and smashed my teeth. And... Uh, then I got old after that. <laughs> Don't know why. 
Okay. The Ballad of Toothy Ted. Wanted. Ted Todd. Toting death. Paying his claim to fame. He showed no mercy. Extracted the fairy from a pillow of money. Pegged her out in Tombstone City in the roots of the lightning tree. Wanted. Ted Todd, toting death, paying his claim to fame. He splayed her wide for a bit of fun, pulled out his enamelled gun, poked the barrel deep inside, laughed and mocked the how she cried, poked her lewdly, drilled her cruelly, Blew her battered beauty away. Wanted Ted Todd toting death, paying his claim to fame. No one gallops away. The hole in the head, the bite of the bullet, the beat of the ballad, the scream through the teeth, the howl from the mouth, the visual horror, livid today, vivid tomorrow throbbing away, wanted to take Ted, make-believe dead, 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 remain as present, the presence of pain, the demon dentist rides again. Now, and Rosemary, you're an artist too. Do you play a big part in, um, in, in, in Cato's work? I mean, do you work together as artists or do you work very individually? Um, we have worked together in artists, as artists, yes, but um, generally um, we work separately. And, I mean, the only reason he's exhibited here is because I've nagged him. But I, I do tend to show my own work, but he's very difficult to, to get to actually get his work out. Thing. Tell, tell me about your feelings about um, a war, an anti-war. Well, I find it absurd and horrific. I really do. I take comfort from doing art because I think art is worth doing. But then I remember people like Hitler did it and things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't say art is to be done by everybody. Certainly being creative, people being creative, is useful. I suppose what I basically believe is that we are so insignificant and we know nothing, absolutely nothing. I want everybody to be themselves and know themselves, not the lies. Um, and now we're looking at a, a, a painting called The Stick. This stick is not magic. This stick is a stick, a fact from a tree. Not made for money, not from a fact tree. Just made to be, like you and me. Extraordinary, very ordinary. So stick this stick in your young memory. You are stuck with it. Isn't it magic? If you make it disappear, it will still be there. When you grow to be taller than a tiny tree, this was written for one of the grandchildren and the, the paintings sort of go with it. He, and I think this grandchild got given 
a stick for Christmas, a, a stick and a poem rather. But but actually, it was a sort of Charlie was quite pleased. Luckily, that uh, that was the story of the the stick. And that brings this edition of Arts Roundup almost to its end. I hope you've enjoyed the hour and we'll tune in again sometime soon. Next up, Linda Ness, Liz Kelly and Bobby Jones with 21st Century Women. So stay tuned.